Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us at church this morning. Uh, I like it when you have a day when you know that there's no marathoners here. Because people that run marathons, they look down on the rest of us. Uh, so, uh, no, thank you for coming. Uh, if you had to dodge traffic uh, or uh, runners, I, I appreciate you making the effort. Uh, to join us to worship together this morning. We are in the midst of our series entitled Your Kingdom Come, which is a move through Matthew chapter 13, which is the parable discourse. And this is Jesus's parables regarding his description of the kingdom. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom, and a lot of us don't have a real handle on what it is he was talking about when he said the kingdom. But before I jump in completely into where we're headed this morning, I want to make a few quick announcements. Um, First thing, Gotham, which is our nine-month Bible study program, is uh, the applications for it are open now. So if you go to l2church.com, it's a big banner. It says Gotham. Uh, And uh, that is something that we highly recommend. It's one of my favorite things I've gotten to be a part of. I've seen it be transformative for people, including myself. Uh, One thing to note, if you have been personally asked by someone who has participated in a Gotham Fellowship, um, uh, we've asked asked each participant, as well as our deacons, to think of one person that they think it would be particularly beneficial for and to go ask them. So if you have been asked, uh, you, you may very well be that one person. Uh, we really want this to spread in uh, a communal way where the people who it's impacted can share the impact that it's had and make an invitation so they can bring more people into that joy. Um, That's kind of a model we use for things in the church. Secondly, uh, Vacation Bible School is coming up. Uh, That's June 4th through the 6th. Uh, That's uh, that's Sunday before, which I guess would be June 3rd. We're going to have a big day of setup So if you're looking to volunteer, or if your kids aren't signed up yet, or if you think your neighbor's kids would like going, uh, then uh, yeah, go go for it. Sign up for that. That's on its way. Also, uh, we are in the midst of quite a big change here at L2. Uh, We are, in fact, uh, selling the building, starting a new counseling and coaching ministry, and starting a new church. And so currently we are kind of in this middle phase where we're, de- where we're deciding a lot of uh, who will be moving forward and what our next 25 years of ministry will look like in the city. So things that we don't have yet are, for example, a name. So we've just been referring to ourselves as new church, and we got to move quick before it catches on. <laughs> so... Uh, So our plan for this week is we've uh, met up as, um, met personally with some people who work sort of in uh, uh, like branding. We've met with people who 
uh, we came together on last Wednesday and sort of brainstormed for those that wanted to be more deeply involved. This Thursday, in the newsletter, there will be a survey that goes out to everyone. In that survey, we'll include options for names that you will get to vote on, and as well as likely a blank space for a write-in, like Mickey Mouse or something. Um, so those are, uh, so that's going to be coming out on Thursday. Our intention is to gather all of that information uh, before Sunday. So as soon as you get the newsletter on Thursday, get in there and just go with your gut with what name you think is best. And if you've got like a church name in your back pocket that you've been holding on to for a while, which is weird, uh, then let us know what that is. Um, so that's on its way as well as uh, more information to come with regards to uh, our uh, sort of like five-year business plan outline for the church in terms of where we're headed. Uh, that'll include uh, financial statements. Our intention moving forward is to have just 100% financial transparency in our budget. So those things will be available to you as we're developing them. Uh, next two weeks is our goal for that. Um, all right. A lot of announcements. So back into where we are today for uh, this sermon series. So the interesting thing, this is it, segues are hard, um, said Dean Kamen. That's the name of the man who invented the Segway scooter. I'm a dad. Dad jokes are permissible. So we... Uh, we are in the midst of our series titled Your Kingdom Come, and here's, here's the, one of the main driving forces for why I wanted to do this series, is it's, it, it's easy for us as Christians to lay out the gospel and make no mention of Jesus' kingdom or Jesus as king. And that's a category that is really missing, and because that category is missing, we don't understand exactly what we're aiming for when Jesus says to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. How can we describe this, uh, uh, this gospel message, which ultimately is good news, the announcement of a new king, how do we describe that when we aren't familiar with his kingdom, this driving force in Jesus's preaching? So, we're moving through Jesus' kingdom parables, which uh, describe the kingdom in uh, parables, which are these sort of uh, figures of speech, metaphors, these stories that convey a truth about the kingdom in a more tangible way. Last week, we looked at two parables regarding the kingdom's value, in which we saw a man discover treasure in a field, and then he goes and he sells all that he has to buy the field. We saw a parable of a merchant who's in search of fine pearls, finds a pearl of great value, and then goes and sells everything that he has to acquire that pearl. What we saw in that is that the kingdom is something of such great value that if we see it clearly, then we will be compelled to sacrifice anything we have in order to attain it. And if we aren't seeing the kingdom that way, it simply means we haven't seen it clearly. The problem, was, the problem is with our eyes. The problem is with our vision. We're valuing things wrong. If we were to value them correctly, we would give up anything to attain the kingdom. If we lose everything for the kingdom, it will be a good deal. This week, we are moving into a parable 
of a, a, a net that is cast into the sea and gathers fish of all kinds. The fish are then brought to the shore, and they're sorted out the good from the bad. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like when you fish with a net, and you catch a lot of different fish, and then you bring them to the shore, and they're sorted out. So this parable <clears throat> should remind us of an earlier one that we went through, of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. In that parable, the kingdom of heaven is described as wheat, which is the crop that you want, always growing amidst present weeds. And when the weeds and the wheat are discovered as growing together, some of the servants who work over this field, they go to their master and they say, should we go ahead and pluck up the weeds and clear the field now? And the master, the owner of the land says, no, wait, because you, in trying to pluck out the weeds now, will make a mistake and you'll end up uprooting the wheat as well. And so in both of these parables, the wheat and the weeds, and this one, what we see are these two stages. There's this stage where we're in the net, and there's fish of all kinds. There's fish that are in the kingdom, there's fish that are sons of the kingdom, and there's fish that are sons of the evil one. And we're existing, coexisting in this space until the kingdom, uh, until the final judgment day, when the fish are ultimately sorted by God, just as we saw in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So these parables are strikingly similar, and yet uh, uh, sort of coming to this topic again will allow us to explore another angle on this reality, the reality that the kingdom is presently taking place in a world that is very mixed. Even our churches contain both wheat and weeds. So if you're looking, for example, for a perfect church, try another one. <laughs> because this is not that. We are full of both wheat and weeds. There's all sorts of fish in here. And that's the way it's going to be until the final judgment, until there is an ultimate separation. So this morning, as we move through this parable, we're going to look and we're going to see the tension of the net. What, what tension does this idea of the net with both good fish and bad fish, one fish and two fish, no, there's no joke there, um, with both good fish and bad fish in it, how does this, how do we live in this space in the net? And then we're going to look and see the difference between gathering of all the fish together and the sorting of the fish and then finally, we're going to look at how important it is for us to hold these two truths together, that there is both this stage of gathering and there is this stage of sorting. So that probably doesn't mean much now, but I hope it will as we move through the text. Okay, so the tension of the net. I'm going to go ahead and read the parable for us so that it's fresh in our minds. Matthew 13, 47 to 50. It says, again... The kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, as I covered before, this is uh, similar to that parable of the wheat and the weeds, and yet now we have a net and we have the commingling of fish that are finally sorted. So, this parable starts with this word again. So, that may not seem important, but when you are reading through the text, Jesus links certain parables together as though they're similar or as though they're driving home a point that needs to be held together with another parable. Now, parables are self-contained stories, so we don't want to press them too deeply into their context to read something into them that isn't there. But when the text shows something like this repetition of again that links certain groups of parables and doesn't link other groups of parables, then it's worth our paying attention to. So the link initially makes a lot of sense because we see Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field that a man discovers and then goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. He finds one and he goes all that he and he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that pearl. Those seem very connected. Those seem like the same story just from a different angle. And then Jesus says, "Again, I say to you, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown in, gathers fish of all, gathers fish of all kinds and then is later sorted." That one doesn't seem to connect in the same way that the parables of value connect. And yet we see this need to hold all three of these parables together in the way that the text does. So that's the question. Why do these parables need to be so held together? I think the reason is that if we just look at the parables of value, and we don't also consider this other truth of the kingdom, which sets an expectation for a currently mixed state of affairs, for a state where we can't clearly discern who's in, who's out, where we aren't allowed that type of judgment as humans. If we were to look at just the parables of value and see the kingdom of heaven is something that if you saw it, you would go and sacrifice everything in joy, then we would have this expectation of churches and of bodies of believers as only driven by this incredible sacrificial joy. And then whenever we didn't see that, we would think, oh, we obviously don't have a true Christian body here. That wouldn't be the case. See, this sets an expectation where we can actually live in the world because we expect the mixture and we expect that the judgment finally belongs to God and it doesn't finally belong to us. But you see, there's another question that I want us to move into as we see these in the text. If we recall all of the parables that we've been through, they seem to fall into different sides as to whether or not your inclusion in the kingdom belongs to your response or to God's choosing. Those seem to be held kind of simultaneously with each other in different parables. We see the parables of value that we just talked about. It's, it seems apparent that it's their response to the kingdom that allows them to attain it, 
or to participate in it. And yet, if we remember the first parable that we covered, the parable of the sower, says, Jesus says that it, this just reveals only those to whom it has been given to know the good news of the kingdom. Which means that what the word is revealing isn't necessarily the response of the person, but rather whether or not God has selected them. So we have these two truths which seem utterly paradoxical, and yet throughout the stories, except, excuse me, throughout these parables, we see some hold one and we see some hold the other, and they're both complete together in this text, and I think that this parable this morning shows us a way to hold both of these truths together in the way that Scripture does. So, what we see in this parable is that there's these types of fish, and they exist in a mixture. And then we see God do an ultimate sorting. The sorting of the fish belongs to God. Every commentator that I read agreed that the net represents the gospel. And so here's the question that I want us to live in sort of for the rest of our time this morning. If ultimately it does not depend on our response, but just on God's choosing, then why do we spread the net of the gospel before everyone? Why do we share the gospel in such a way that that it seems to like gather all these people, that all these people, saved and not saved, are touched by it in some way? Why would that be our goal as a church? If ultimately, it isn't that thing which is doing the sorting, but it is God who does the sorting. That's the question that we're going to move into. How do we hold these two truths together in the way that Scripture does? So we're going to look at the gathering, which represents our sharing of the gospel. We're going to look at the sorting, which is that God chooses whom he saves. All right. We're in the deep end. Fish joke. Matthew 13, 47 to 50. This is gathering and sorting. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. So as I shared, the net represents the gospel, and it gathers fish of every kind. It is to be indiscriminately shared before all people. And that is what we should expect of the gospel. That's because that is in adherence with the command that Jesus gave to us at the very end of this gospel. It's recorded at the very end of this gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We see that part of Jesus's, this is where we began our series, if you remember, with Jesus's ascension, ascending to the throne of power, being given all authority. And in light of that authority that Jesus has been given, he says, therefore, go into the world and share the good news of my kingdom with all peoples, all nations. Go as far as you possibly can. 
Part of Jesus' ascension means that Satan is bound, the nations can no longer be deceived, and the gospel will move forward through the world. That is our call. And so, for the kingdom of heaven to be like a net that's thrown into the sea and gathers fish of every kind, that makes sense. That lines up with our call to share the gospel with all peoples indiscriminately. There are no boundaries. There are no authorities that can get in the way of it. There are no limits to the spread of the gospel. And so we see that that allows for this sort of stage one of what we're called to. But the parable has a second stage to it, which is Matthew 13, 48 through 50. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the net is drawn up. The fish are sorted. Notice that Jesus immediately collapses the parable, and he goes straight into just talking in the reality of what's going to happen. He doesn't, for a moment, allow the possibility to creep into our minds that it is us who will do the sorting because it is not us who will do the sorting. Just as we learned in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we are incapable right now of telling the difference between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the world. We'll come up with some sort of strange metric where if you can do this sort of magic trick, then you're in. And if you can't, then you're out. If you weigh as much as a duck, sorts of things. And we... So we'll develop these metrics that don't make sense and we'll create cultures that discipline people into adhering to those metrics, which aren't biblical. Because what the kingdom is making a distinction about is what is happening in your heart, things that just aren't available to us. And so, Jesus makes clear in this parable as well, that we will not be doing the sorting. He will send his angels, and at his own command, his angels will sort exactly and precisely according to his direction. There is no opportunity for us to consider that that responsibility is ours. And so in this, we see these two truths held together. We see that we are called to bear witness to all, because there is no other means that people might be saved. Because there is no other possibility for salvation than to confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we are called to bear forth, to bring forth this witness of the gospel into the world so that it captures fish of every kind, So that in every nation, in all the places where people don't have access to it, we have this complete and utter responsibility placed upon our shoulders that the good news of the kingdom might spread. And then we see that the sorting belongs to God. It does not belong to us. 
So how do we hold these two things together? It may seem paradoxical that human responsibility matters, that our bearing witness to the gospel actually matters in its spread, that people's response to the gospel matters in terms of their salvation, and ultimately, the sorting belongs exclusively to God. It is God who chooses. So, how can that be? How do we hold those together? Well, the issue is... No, I don't want to go there yet. Okay, so what we're going to look at is what happens when we prioritize one truth over another one of those truths. Because what we often want to do is we want to take these two things that the Bible holds clearly together, and because they seem paradoxical in our tiny little human minds, we want to uh, not be able to hold them together, but instead make one swallow the other. That way we can just say, all right, here's the final thing. Here's the final thing that ultimately matters. And the way that that plays out uh, is, I think, one of, one of the finest places that this sort of tension is captured, is in a book by J.I. Packer, and it's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's a small book. I recommend it. If you're on your phone Bible, go check out Amazon, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, I'm uh, drawing on that a lot for the, re- for the remainder of the sermon. So there are two issues that typically arise. One is exclusive concern with human responsibility, which is to say that, okay, the fundamental driving force here is just our human responsibility. Whether or not we share the gospel, whether or not the person we're sharing it with responds appropriately. That's the determining factor in who is wheat and who is weeds, who's a good fish, who's a bad fish, who's in the kingdom, and who is outside in hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or there's the exclusive concern with God's sovereignty which says that it does not matter how humans respond. It does not matter whether we spread the gospel or not. The thing that matters is that God is the one who is in control. He is guiding all things towards his ends, towards his glory, and therefore it doesn't matter that we share. He will get what he wants in the end, and his plans will not be interrupted. Those two truths don't seem like they can stand together, and yet somehow the reality in which we inhabit holds them both together. So we need to learn how to as well. So let's look at the first problem, which is an exclusive concern with human responsibility. I think that this one often gets the, uh, often gets the easiest pass because we think of it as the lesser of two evils. If we're exclusively concerned with human responsibility and we deny God's sovereignty as an equal truth in the situation, then uh, at least we'll feel the burden to share the gospel. At least we'll feel the burden to uh, bring to light to people just, just how small of a precipice we're hanging over. At least we'll feel compelled to not shirk a responsibility that's been given, but we'll go and we'll plead with people to say, look at what's at stake here. We are creatures, 
And there's a God that we're accountable to, and we have treated ourselves like that God. And that means he is going to disregard us completely and pour out his wrath on us. Our only hope is that his son took that wrath upon us. And if we put our faith in him, then we will receive his righteousness and live in glory forever with God. At least if we consider that we bear some of that responsibility, at least perhaps even to the neglect of God's sovereignty, at least then we'll be moving as a church. So while this is often considered the lesser of two evils, there's a real danger in taking on the responsibility of converting people that doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. If we take on that responsibility and we think that God's sovereignty does not play a factor into our salvation or the salvation of others, and we think that it just depends on our ability to portray the gospel and our ability to bring people to a decision, to get them to finally say some magic words, some incantation that can bring them to faith in Christ. If we think that that all depends on us, then we will inevitably reduce the gospel to something that it isn't. And we will inevitably twist it and distort it to make it something that elicits a response that we have crafted. So J.I. Packer says this, he says, thus our philosophy of evangelism would become terrifyingly similar to the philosophy of brainwashing. And we would no longer be able to argue when such a similarity is asserted to be a fact that this is not a proper conception of evangelism. For it would be a proper conception of evangelism if the production of converts was really our responsibility. Consider that. If the production of converts really did just hinge on us, if that were not God's responsibility, but it were truly ours, then it would be the right thing to do to get people together and manipulate and brainwash them as much as we could to get them to say the right things because consider what's at stake. What wouldn't we violate in them in order to prevent them from hell and bring them into an eternal glory? If it were really on us, we would no longer be bearing witness to a message. But we would just be getting people to try and say the right things. Russ says all the time, I'm not interested in what you think, I'm interested in how you think. And when salvation just belongs to us, the gospel becomes a simple what you think. And if we can just get you to say, you think these things in this order, it can be completely sealed off from how you think. You don't think of your life as colored by a living Lord who sacrificed himself for you. Instead, that's just a fact placed in your already worldly, idolatrous worldview. 
We reduce the gospel, we twist it when we consider that creating converts is something that we do. It just becomes get people to say the right stuff. So that's the danger of an exclusive concern with human responsibility. Now the danger of an exclusive concern with God's sovereignty also exists. I think that my discovery of God's sovereignty, and what we mean by that, it's a word that I just will never be able to spell, because there's a G in it somewhere. Uh, What we mean by a concern with God's sovereignty is that God is completely and utterly in control of all things. This is a taking seriously of the Bible when uh, Paul says, for all things, all things are from him and through him and to him. He is the initiator, he is the means, and he is the goal of everything. And for me, discovering that fact, quite frankly, it was like a second conversion. Because I realized that God had always just been a component part in my universe, and the reality is that we are just component parts in his. J.I. Packer describes it as a Copernican revolution of the soul, which is looking out from the earth, you thought that everything revolved around you, and the reality is that you were revolving around something much greater than you. And when we realize that, we start to discover these things of a a peace and an assurance of our salvation that is deeper than I ever thought possible because I know how fickle I am, but if it's ultimately up to God, I know that he is completely faithful. And so I realize that there's a new place to locate my faith in, which is in the faithfulness of God rather than locating my faith in how I respond. I realized that my faith, until coming to terms with God's sovereignty, had always just been in me. My faith had always been in how I'm responding and how I I can cultivate things in my life that give me an assurance that just points constantly back to me, rather than coming to terms with the fact that when I stand before God, I stand on nothing. He holds me up completely of his own accord. And that means we no longer live pursuing our own glory. But instead, we discover that the role of our lives is to pursue His. And you find that this unlocks the Bible and you see it everywhere. That this is all arcing towards His glory. And if I want a sense of purpose, I I need to be a part of something bigger than me. And that actually solves that issue. And if I want to be courageous, then I need to somehow find a way to forget myself. And if it turns out I'm in a story that isn't primarily about me, but it's about him, and that my greatest satisfaction is found in him being glorified, then all of a sudden you can be courageous in things that you never thought you'd be able to be. And so this discovery of God's sovereignty was like a second conversion for me, and it brings along with it this temptation to consider any sharing of the gospel, any evangelism, any notion of human responsibility in the equation as some sort of sneaky man-centeredness. 
And so what happens is we start to consider any evangelism just bad doctrine. Because God gets who he wants to get. But you see, this very same Jesus who says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, does not use that as a reason for us to stay put. But he says, therefore, in light of that authority, because of that authority, you go and you bear witness to the king. Is it on you to make the convert? No. But it is on you to bear witness. J.I. Packer, again, he says this. He says, God did not teach us the reality of his rule in order to give us an excuse for neglecting his orders. God does not say to us that he is king. King over everything. In order for us to be able to say to him, we can disregard your order to bear witness to your kingdom. So, what does it then look like? Those are two negative examples. Those are the cliffs we don't want to fall off. What does it look like when this is really done? When these two truths are really held together? So, my favorite example, and I, I, after the parable of the wheat and the weeds, somebody asked this question, and I answered referencing this text. Um, so, it seemed appropriate for this parable as well. Paul, I think, provides us with this incredible example of holding these things together. He says, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 17. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the others, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul gives this description. What is our spreading of the net like? What is our bearing witness to the kingdom like? It is like we are the aroma of Christ to God among the nations. And to some, a sharing of the invitation of the gospel will smell like life. One of our <laughs> elders, Ryan, I can see him right there, we, he was like, we got, we got to get t-shirts that say, be the smell. <laughs> That'll be our slogan. Be the smell you wish to smell in the world. Gandhi didn't say that. We said that. Um, we're not going to do that. But he is, we are this aroma. And to some, they will smell it. They will see this invitation of the gospel, and they will say, that smells finally like life. I realize I have this deep need for a true rescue. And finally, there's an opportunity. How unimaginable the grace of God that he would make such an incredible sacrifice for a sinner like me and that by no works of my own but by merely putting my faith in a God who's demonstrated his love for me while I'm still a sinner, I'm able to approach him like a son. 
What good news. And to others, it will be an aroma that smells like death. Who is God to tell me that I'm a sinner? Who is he to make the rules over me? Who is he to tell me that I ought to be saved? Who is he to tell me that there is only one way to do it? It'll smell repulsive. Same message. We see that Paul says, because he understands the weight of that, and you can, it's almost like you can feel it start to creep into his thinking of just how heavy this is for one person to bear. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? How can you possibly walk down the street and the people that you see, you realize there's this eternal consequence that they bear with them. And you're going to be a smell, an aroma, a differentiator, just by the sharing of this thing that has impacted your life so deeply. That will either lead to death or it will lead to life. Who's sufficient for that? And then he comes in and he remembers that it is not his responsibility to work the salvation because he says we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We are not out here trying to be coaxing. We are not trying to cause a manipulation. Instead, we are men of sincerity, and the reality is we've been commissioned by God, and as God looks at us to stay true to his story, to the witness of his gospel, we speak in Christ. And it is Christ that does the saving. We have to hold these two truths together, not one at the expense of the other, but both together. And for some, if you're anything like me, if you have any sort of a disposition like mine, you're thinking that's unacceptable. I'm not going to bow my reason to my faith all of a sudden. This worldview that I have knit together and concocted in such a tight way, I know we can explain it in a way that doesn't demonstrate a paradox to us. But in studying God, this is an expectation that we should have. That when he reveals himself to us, we ought to expect to encounter truths that transcend us that force us to not be able to reduce our faith to a set of irrefutable propositions, but that force us to keep it in a God who is bigger than us in every way. So I'll finish with this quote from Packer again. He says, We ought not in any case to be surprised when we find mysteries of this sort in God's word. For the creator is incomprehensible to his creatures. A God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image and therefore an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible at all. For what the God of the Bible says is this, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
when we hold these two together, we're simply being forced to treat God as God and humbly come before him as finite creatures, eager to respond and to share our only hope for salvation and knowing at the same time that it utterly belongs to him. So with that, let's take a couple of questions. I'm sure there aren't any. How can we really know whether we are wheat or good fish before the harvest sorting occurs? I don't think faith is something that you know reflectively. Meaning, what we want to do is to distance ourselves from our person. So, I'm standing there. And we want to be able to step back and say, because of these qualities in me as I see myself, I need no faith because I can simply know completely that I'm good. I made it because of these sorts of decisions. That's what I mean by reflectively. That's not the way our knowledge works as people. You're always in yourself. You're always looking out your own eyes, trapped in time, moving forward at a steady rate of one minute per minute. And so your faith has to be lived out. So the question becomes, where do you locate the object of your faith? When you find yourself struggling in sin, do you relocate the object of your faith into the energy that you can muster to present a beautiful self to God? Or do you relocate the object of your faith in Christ, who freely gives to you his righteousness and who will turn away no one who comes to him, knowing that you can only go when the Father draws you. Rather than trying to consider how can I reflectively know something that you'll never be able to do because you're always going to be living in yourself, consider what is the object of your faith and relocate on that. Next question. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. How does this free will to take up our cross and follow Jesus correlate to the fact that we are predestined to be good fish or bad fish? I, I wish I could offer more than these are two truths that we have to hold together. That we have this real responsibility and it completely belongs to God. If you find in your heart the ability to be humiliated enough 
to accept both of those seemingly contradictory principles together. Perhaps that's a first cross to take up. Okay, next question. All right. Feel free to email in questions if you have any more. Uh, this is a big topic, and these are big things that we're talking about in Scripture. And uh, don't think you know too quickly. Hang out in the tension of these topics for a while. I think uh, that you'll find that uh, incredible revelation is in that tension. So with that, we are going to take communion. And communion is an, an opportunity to respond. To respond in faith and call to mind to remember that Christ broke his body, which is represented by the broken bread, and poured out his blood that his elect might be saved. And it's an invitation that we spread to all people. And so consider, is that good news? If it is, then come and take and eat. Be born again. Enjoy your peace with God, because Jesus offers that way. Let's pray. Father, all things are from you and through you and to you. You hold together all things. Jesus, you are the firstborn. You are eternal. Lord, you provide us what we can know about you. You reveal what we can know about you in the word for our good. And these things that you have shown us are meant to provide us these boundaries and these pathways that guide us closer to you. Father, I pray that our minds would be guided by your word. And that these tensions that you call us to hold together, that you would equip us to be able to as we look in your gospel and see, just as you've held together justice and grace on the cross, Lord, that you can hold together our responsibility and your sovereignty. Lord, let us humble ourselves before you, expecting to find a God that transcends us in every way. Lord, we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio, as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.